Hey everyone, this is Anne Doherty, co-owner and co-founder of Loom Advising and your host for Current, an energy podcast. Um, today I'm excited to sit down and talk about workforce development with two members of our executive team, Eileen Hannigan and Mike Lee. And we all know that as we look to transition our energy resources from dirtier resources like um, coal and natural gas to less polluting and carbon neutral resources like renewables, we have a big task in front of us. And at the center of that is the American workforce and how we're going to work to transform that workforce and engage our workforce in building a clean energy economy. And today we're going to dig into that topic from changing you know the ways that we think about who we recruit into the industry and how we do that and the requirements of that to the needs of small businesses to thinking really differently about what a just transition is in the first place um so before we jump into that conversation let me introduce my colleagues for you first i'm excited to welcome mike lee who recently joined our team um, as an executive team member and principal after serving as the Energy Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. And in that role, he led the state's energy efficiency, integrated resource planning and offshore wind procurement and building, uh, excuse me, offshore wind procurement and building and transportation decarbonization. And Mike did a lot of other things that we, we won't name here. Eileen is also a member of our executive team, and we're thrilled to have her join us on our podcast. Eileen is a principal with Illum Advising and has been with us from almost day one. Eileen draws on more than 15 years of research and evaluation experience in her work and is a sought-after expert in behavioral research, um, behavioral program design, and demand response offerings. Eileen's played a real critical role in workforce development research for a few of our clients here at Illum and authored the blog, Workforce Development as Economic Agency. Welcome both to our podcast. Uh, we're going to start with a um, simple and not too heady question, which is, what do you guys see as the impacts of the pandemic on our understanding of the energy workforce? And if you you know, couldn't tell I was being a little sarcastic there. But um, Mike, why don't you kick us off? Give us your thoughts on that question. Yeah, thanks for the question, Anne. Um, let me start by saying, I think, you know, the, the pandemic has highlighted that the energy workforce is um, resilient, but that um, volatility also um, takes its toll on the energy workforce. And uh, let me unpack that a little bit more. So in Connecticut, 85% of the clean energy jobs that were lost in, um, due to the pandemic were in the energy efficiency sector, and particularly in the residential energy efficiency sector, and to some extent, the small business um, sector as well. And not surprisingly, that's because in the residential energy efficiency sector, most of those jobs are people going into homes and doing air sealing or installing weather uh, insulation. And, you know, people, um, you know, obviously were like very concerned about having um, people walking around their homes. And so I think that really took its toll on the industry. But I think I would say resilient because, you know, post, once we figured out how to incorporate health and safety measures, once we figured out, 
you know, how to sort of like be in people's homes as safely as possible, a lot of those jobs came back and people got reemployed. But at the same time, not everybody came back. And I think one of the things it highlights is that um, industries where there's a lot of volatility, um, not everybody wants to be in those industries. Um, and some people want play, to go work for places where there's a little bit more job stability, a little bit more predictability. And sort of like the restaurant industry, um, where a lot of people aren't going back to the restaurant industry um, because of a lot of the issues with working in the restaurant industry. Um, and so I think, you know, it highlights that, um, you know, the workforce is resilient, but that the volatility does have its price. And, you know, it's going to be hard to get back to the levels of employment pre-pandemic. Uh, I think the other thing that... Um, the pandemic highlighted as it pertains to the workforce is that, you know, government really has a role to play, particularly in the energy industry, where, you know, most of the programs that we're talking about are regulated um, by a public utility commission or some other type of government agency. And so the government has a lot more influence about um, how those industries operate. And so, for example, in Connecticut, we did a lot of things to um, keep employees um, sort of like employed so that they wouldn't leave the industry and we take the risk that they're never come back. And so we like paid for them to go to training. Um, we really helped working with the small business owners to help them improve cash flow so they could continue to pay their employees and keep them on payroll. And so there's a lot of things that, you know, we did as a government that, you know, I believe were necessary in order to like maintain um, as much of the, you know, the clean energy workforce as possible. It's really interesting in the ways that you all stepped in in Connecticut, particularly around these issues around employees on payroll. I think a lot of governments would probably not see that as their responsibility, but it's such a simple step. I, I imagine complex to implement, but simple um, solution to dealing with a lot of volatility in what was a very scary moment when everyone was pulling out of homes and out of the, the field, so to speak. Um, Eileen, did you have some thoughts you wanted to add to that? Yeah, I thought um, Mike really presented the situation well there, but just want to, you know, emphasize that, um, you know, 2020 really was a tough year for clean energy jobs. And some of the stats Mike shared around experience in Connecticut, you know, also was reflected nationally. Um, first three months of the pandemic, devastating job losses. And while there was recovery through 2020, you know, we ended the year still with a 12% decline nationally in clean energy jobs compared to pre-COVID employment levels. And just also, I think it's important to keep in mind that um, forecasts were that, you know, pre-pandemic forecasts were to be adding clean energy jobs. And so not only do we have the losses, we also lost the addition of the jobs. So we're really down extra and depending on the continuing state of recovery, it could take you know, well into 2023 before we reach those pre-pandemic employment levels. It's such an important perspective to maintain, Eileen. It's not only that we were on a trajectory to add, but that we, we ended the year at a deficit. And so we actually lost what we were hoping to also gain in the year. So it's really um, important to, to sort of sit with as we think about rebuilding um, Mike, can you kind of walk us through some of the conversations that are taking place at the national level around workforce development and some of the industry priorities that you see coming forward um, that would help to sort of address these challenges that were faced in the workforce? Yeah, for sure. I think the, the biggest one is that 
um, we all talk about, and I think we all believe that the clean energy economy really has the opportunity to create a lot of jobs for a lot of people. But I think we're also recognizing that um, that not the distribution of jobs, um, if we want it to be inclusive of all types of people, all geographies, is not going to happen by accident. And so uh, if we want the workforce development benefits of the clean energy economy to really um, be realized by people um, in all sorts of different places and sectors and walks of life, we really need to be intentional about it. Um, and I think um, we're starting to figure out that there's a lot of work that needs to be done um, so that sort of like everybody benefits, um, particularly workers benefit from this clean energy economy. Um, and I think so, a lot of those issues are within the control of um, governments um, and energy programs in terms of like developing training programs and doing targeted recruitment of people into these programs. But I think it also highlights some of the issues that you know go beyond the energy sector, which is to say that there are some societal issues that really impact you know who can participate in the clean energy workforce. Um, so a lot of us are familiar with um, like utility contracts and a lot of utilities will say that like you know if you're a contractor to them there's a whole look there's a spreadsheet of you know you can have this criminal record but it had to be three years ago or you could have committed this crime but it could be two years ago and you know i think the reality is that that eliminates a lot of people from the clean energy workforce because they do have some type of criminal record and it's you know in a lot of cases probably totally reasonable right like nobody wants the liability of putting somebody that's working in somebody's home um, and sort of like taking that risk, but at the same time, we have to recognize that those are barriers to, you know, people um, entering into the into the workforce, and you know that speaks to things about like how we do policing in this country, and like does policing um, disproportionately impact certain communities and not others, and then that ultimately has impacts on about who can be employed in certain industries, and I think all of those things matter, and so. Um, you know, we're not going to, as an energy industry, going to solve our policing issues, but I think we have to be cognizant that there are, there is an interconnectedness um, amongst a lot of these issues. And I think going back to, you know, something that I said previously was is that, you know, because the energy sector is like very heavily regulated in a lot of ways, you know, the opportunity for government or policymakers to really have more of an influence um, is just more available. Um, you know, in the energy sector. So I think hopefully we can address some of these issues. I'm so glad you raised that point, Mike, because there are all these uh, policy and um, institutional barriers that sort of creep into determining who can play and who can't play in these environments. And um, I can say from my own experience, having started a small business, that it's very difficult to access capital, even when you have opportunities ahead of you to build a business to compete with sort of larger incumbencies. And one of the things we've seen in workforce development entities, just even beyond the individual actors who are employed in the industry, but the organizations that have the opportunity to bid on contracts, let's say, are often faced with um, bidding against these very entrenched, large multinational firms who are looking to take advantage of public funding and have difficulty sort of upseating those folks um, in the process of, of participating in programs. And we saw that, you know, we felt a little bit of that um, as a loom, even just participating and starting the company, but definitely have seen it in our evaluations. 
Eileen, um, last week, um, Illinois Governor Pritzker signed the Clean Energy Jobs Act, and Illinois is home to more than 150,000 clean energy jobs, and the state plans to invest $115 million per year to bolster job training hubs and create career pipelines, particularly with a focus on those who really need them the most. So based on your research um, in Illinois, but also other parts of the country, what do you see as some of the workforce development challenges that the state of Illinois, for example, will face, or perhaps other um, states and utilities throughout the nation? Yeah, well, I think there's a lot that the state of Illinois and utilities can learn from efforts elsewhere and efforts in other sectors. Um, so three come to mind immediately. You know, one is the need to recognize and to the extent that it can address structural barriers. Like it's not enough to provide job, job training programs. There are other barriers to employment that go beyond training um, or even in fact the ability to attend training that come into play. Mike referenced one of those and talking about folks who have um, a history of incarceration. Even just having a big gap in employment history can be a barrier. And we're gonna have a lot of people who have big gaps in employment uh, due to COVID as they are starting to trying to get back to work post COVID. You know, the on top of that childcare, elder care needs, the need to pay bills and not being able to participate, say in an unpaid, you know, training program, um, all come into play. So, you know, while utilities alone can't overcome all those structural barriers, uh, you know, the programs will be more successful if they can build in solutions with things like paid internship and, you know, taking a hard look at eligibility requirements to participate in job training programs is also critical. Uh, the second one I would highlight are partnerships. So, you know, I would say that, um, you know, utilities can't do it alone, shouldn't do it alone. There are organizations that have had workforce development as part of their core mission for decades. You know, Urban League is a well-known one. So utility programs should look to community organizations for successful program models, um, for insights on best ways to do communication and outreach, and they can also you know, be a conduit to make connections to recruit for workforce development programs. And then the third one I'll just highlight, uh, you know, uh, kind of circling back to that same theme of it can't just be a job, job training program, is that it also can't just focus on technical skills. So, Examples of successful programs always include soft skills such as teamwork, communication, problem solving, sales, business management, like all of those things, you know, clean energy and energy efficiency jobs, you know, are multifaceted, require a range of skills to be successful and um, preparing people for those positions re requires sort of learning, learning that full range. That's great. Mike, is there anything you want to add to what Eileen shared? I think Eileen touched on a point that I thought was particularly um, relevant, which is that I think we really need to help the small businesses and other employers um, who are going to be hiring these people, um, whether that's um, you're, you're paying a portion of a person's salary um, for the first six months or something along those lines, and really give employers an incentive and a reason to sort of like go beyond the bounds that they normally go through, particularly like, you know, a lot of small businesses, they don't have the margin to hire somebody and for that, 
you know, person that they hire to not work out and they've lost six months and they have to go through the recruiting process again. And there's just a lot of costs associated with that. And so, um, you know, for some small businesses, like, you know, it's not worth the risk, so to speak. Um, so I think there's a, just a lot of ways that, you know, we can partner with um, businesses to sort of support, um, you know, workers uh, entering into new spaces. This is a great point um, both of you made, and the idea of risk sharing is, I think, an important one, particularly if we're trying to also, again, support the development of small business as well, which is, um, you know, I think it's part of a lot of the economic development projects that, you know, states and other funding entities are interested in doing, but don't necessarily have it, say, articulated in workforce development, but they are in many ways hand in hand uh, in terms of uh, really developing folks who can serve communities well. And that kind of relates to my next question a bit. Um, Mike, earlier this year, the Interagency Working Group on Coal and Power Plant Communities and Economic Revitalization, give it a very short name, uh, <laughs> <laughs> released its 2021 um, report to the president offering some initial recommendations on the just transition across energy impacted communities. So as we think about it from the vantage point of communities, what do we need to get right um, in order to make sure that this transition is effective and ultimately just? Yeah, one thing that the report um, finds, which I, I'll highlight is really working with that local community to identify like what their needs are, what their strengths are, um, and really just tailor solutions for individual communities and not utilize a one-size-fits-all approach. And I think, you know, we're really recognizing that is, um, you know, very much true in the, in the way that we need to be able to approach things. And, you know, I think the other thing that's worth mentioning is that, um, you know, transitioning careers from coal to something else, like, is difficult. I mean, transitioning careers for anybody is difficult. Um, and so, it, I think it's easy um, as an easy talking point to say that like, oh, we, people can just transition to a clean energy job or they can become a solar installer or something along those lines. But, you know, all those skills of, um, you know, in the coal industry are not necessarily, um, you know, transferable to being like a solar installer or home weatherization um, technician or something along those lines. So I think we just have to recognize that it is difficult and that it requires a lot of investment and intentionality in order um, to really sort of like see these um, transitions happen. And I think the other thing that I'll point out, which is that, you know, as much as um, we can't um, pursue a one-size-fits-all solution, you know, we do have to figure out what works and identify those programs, those investments that are working, and then build on those successes. Um, because I do think there is a level of urgency if we're going to meet our climate goals to, um, you know, sort of like transition to a clean energy economy sooner, but at the same time, we can't leave workers behind in that process. That's a really great point. And, um, you know, as you're thinking about ensuring that our workforce developments are equitable and inclusive, what actions do you feel like we can continue to take sort of building on your points? earlier, Mike. Eileen, maybe you could um, answer that for us. Yeah, thanks, Anne. I mean, I think there's definitely a lot of room for improvement just to illustrate it with some numbers. You know, a recent report from E2 and their partners found that Black workers represent about 8% of the clean energy workforce compared to about 13% of the nation's total labor force in women 
hold about 27% of clean energy jobs compared to about 48% of all jobs nationally. Um, so I think to you know combat those and create more equity and jobs, some of the strategies I re referenced earlier apply here, you know, addressing those systemic barriers to open jobs up to more individuals, partnering with community organizations um, to reach more individuals can also help create a more inclusive workforce. Um, but you know, one point I think is also important to keep in mind is that it's not just about a more inclusive workforce and it's not just about jobs. Because um, time and again, as we research and try to understand barriers to participation in utility energy efficiency programs, you know, we learn that trusted community members and word of mouth are important factors in participation. So if we can diversify the energy efficiency workforce, it will also help utility energy efficiency programs reach new communities because they will have those you know, trusted folks within their community members that are working in the industry. Yeah, and that kind of gets back to Mike's earlier point of really embedding um, some of the thinking and engagement within communities as we look toward uh, developing workforces. Mike, um, what would you like to add to what Eileen has said? Yeah, I think a couple things. I think one is um, one of the things that we can continue to do, and you know, a lot of utilities already have these goals um, and their supplier diversity goals. And I think those goals, you know, do help to create, you know, businesses um, that are owned by a, a more diverse set of people. And I think when we have that diversity in the businesses who are providing services to our utilities and to our other energy programs, you know, they will hire from their networks and they can communicate because they are a trusted messenger to a different set of people um, than the business next door. And so I think that the more diverse we are there, um, the, the better opportunity we have to sort of like have a more diverse workforce. And I think on the total other end of the spectrum, you know, I think one of the other things that um, we need to think about is how do we market clean energy careers to people when they are trying to figure out like what they're going to do for a job or for a career? You know, according to one study, two of the top three fastest growing jobs are solar, uh, solar installers and wind turbines wind turbine um, technicians. And the third one is nurses. Um, and obviously nurses, there's a lot more nurses than there are wind turbine technicians and solar installers, but it just speaks to like the growth opportunity um, in those jobs. And those jobs are, um, can also be careers, right? So, you know, you can earn um, a decent living being a wind turbine technician. And, but I think, uh, you know, for a lot of people, they have no idea that that job even exists. And so I think for a lot of the clean energy jobs that we're talking about, part of it is like marketing to, and maybe that's not the right word, but like letting people and students know when they're in high school or maybe even they're in their middle school, like what their opportunities and what paths there are. So if like, you're like, I don't want to go to college, like, you know, this is your path and there are different options for careers in the clean energy economy for you. And I think like the more we can build awareness, um, the better off we'll be as a whole because we'll have, um, you know, there's a shortage of clean energy workers across the board, but then I think we'll also be able to diversify the workforce by, you know, figuring out how to like recruit students into different careers um, across the board in a bunch of different ways. 
That's such a great point. And it does feel in a way that our industry, at least the way that we work and on the efficiency side, particularly is pretty invisible to prospective employees, both on the the side of the business that we all work in, um, as well as in sort of installers and technicians and others who are on the ground really delivering a lot of these technologies and solutions to customers. Um, uh, you know, since we have a little time, I want to ask you guys another question. So I am going completely off script here. But the um, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately is we've been getting more and more requests from clients to talk about workforce is um, thinking about whether or not the project ahead of us from, say, coal to um, renewables or um, zero net energy solutions has to be a one for one job replacement. Meaning, um, you know, are there ways that we should be looking at transitioning folks to other sustainable and growth industries, even if they're not within the energy industry, particularly if they represent viable solutions? And where, what is our responsibility as an industry in the transition to just make sure that people have viable jobs, period, not necessarily clean energy jobs? Any of you want to take that on? I mean, I think that makes sense. You know, I don't think it needs to be one for one. And I think we're limiting our opportunities for people to find future employment that they're going to enjoy and thrive in if we're, if we sort of are only thinking about it from a, you know, within the energy sector and moving from, you know, coal to clean energy. So, I mean, I definitely think that makes sense. And I definitely think it gives us more opportunities to like match skills um, and preferences if we think a little bit wider. I'll just add that this might be a great time to do that, given that there's a whole shakeup going on, you know, across <laughs> industries and who is doing what job and, you know, can be an opportunity for somebody to consider you know, switching sectors, switching careers. Yeah. And, you know, and I raise this because those of our, like our clients, particularly on the utility side, who are really looking at serious challenges like decommissioning coal plants and the economic viability of those communities dependent on them can often be limited as to what they replace those jobs with. And you can't site renewable plants just anywhere. You can't necessarily build, you know, any number of things um, to replace those jobs one for one. And the, there was a um, really interesting case study that one of our board members brokered where a TVA in particular decommissioned a coal plant, but then worked with Google to replace that coal plant with, um, with a data center. And so it wasn't obviously an energy job per se, but it maintained the same sort of energy benefit, if you will, to say TBA and utilize that existing infrastructure in many ways, but still made sure that those who were losing their jobs from that coal plant were getting a job elsewhere. And it was ultimately run by those individuals. And that completely blew my mind when I heard that because I've only ever heard the argument for um, a just transition being really about one energy source to another versus just being a good steward of those individuals, for example, who have contributed their lives to serving, you know, these particular organizations or all of us really through these energy sources. I mean, I think that's an, a great example. I was just thinking about West Virginia, where, you know, I think from a broader perspective, one of West Virginia's pivots is really towards recreation and tourism um, and to diversify their economy a little bit more. But, you know, I think it's sort of like that's really something that 
that state is really focused on. And it is seems like a good opportunity for, you know, to create jobs in there. And that might not seem like the natural flow from, you know, coal jobs to recreation and tourism, but, you know, it, it, it probably does sort of like, you know, merit thinking about things from that perspective that it really can be um, a pretty dramatic shift in the sectors that people are employed in. Yeah, and you know, and if you consider it from the, the vantage point of a utility, utilities, let's just talking about utilities um, and, and their businesses, although the needs are much greater than that, you know, in order for a utility to thrive, like any corporation that's sort of dependent on their population, they have to have a healthy, viable sort of, um, I hate to use the word productive, but a com communities that essentially can afford to live in the places that they serve and that can afford to pay for power. And so it, there's sort of inherent interest to make sure that those economies remain vital because they're intricately linked to each other, you know, in that way, which I don't know that there are many other um, industries or many other folks who serve, you know, the public that are have such a directly a direct relationship to their sort of mutual success if you will yeah i mean you know i know we haven't spent a lot of time talking about natural gas but in a lot of places there's a lot of you know questions about what is the future of the natural gas distribution system in a decarbonized economy and and i think a lot of policymakers are concerned about making long-term investments in the natural gas infrastructure and I think one of the conversations that's out, that's out there is, you know, well, instead of, you know, giving utilities an opportunity to earn based on investments and in expanding infrastructure, perhaps the paradigm is we give them the opportunity to still spend that money, but instead of expansion, we're talking about how do we reduce the amount of leaks that are coming from that system. And so you're still sort of like employing people uh, and the utilities still have the opportunity to earn revenue, but it's just in a different way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's almost like the workforce conversation has two sides to it. One is a do no harm side with respect to the transition of jobs and making sure that these economies are cared for, for lack of a better term, in those transitions. But then there's also the um, you know development of benefits and assurance of economic development in the investment. So you're trying to sort of avoid loss of jobs on the one hand, while also making sure that those who have been historically disadvantaged have the opportunity to participate in all of these investments that are taking place. And it's this kind of kind of distinction I think is important as we start to think about how we create policy, but also how we create um, you know viable economies moving forward. I feel like I could talk to you guys about this forever because it's such a fascinating topic and it's such an important one right now. And um, there's no one solution that's going to work for any one region. It seems to be very much about figuring out what's going to work for the folks that you're serving and that you're engaging in whatever role it is that you have as a state or local actor or utility, for example. Um, but I thank you guys so much for jumping on this call, for talking through this with us and the folks who are listening. Um, and, um, for those of you who are listening, you are welcome to subscribe to our podcast. And if there's anything that, um, 
that you want us to cover, please reach out because we'd love to um, take suggestions for additional topics. So you can search for Loom Advising on iTunes to hit the subscribe button. Um, and uh, it's important to call out that Current is created by Loom's production team and music by Blue Dot Sessions. We'll see you guys next time. Thanks again, Eileen and Mike. Thank you. And don't forget, Thanks. you can go to SoundCloud if you're not an iPhone user. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Mike. People don't use iPhones? <laughs> I know. I, I feel like I need to get one. <laughs> <laughs>